welcome you here to the Houghton Wesleyan Church on this second Sunday of Easter. Please stand and join us as we sing God's praises together.
Father, we have come to worship today because of who you are and because of all that you've done for us in Christ. We give you thanks for this wonderful Easter season as we, uh, as we remember that we are people of the resurrection. <coughs> Be pleased with our worship today, Lord. Let it glorify you. And may we draw closer to you as we worship. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Sure, word of greeting for those in worship today. There are lots of uh, announcements in your bulletin. There are some number of inserts. Take a look at those. Uh, a couple of them are uh, sign-ups for helping out with children's ministries uh, in May and through the summer. We appreciate uh, your willingness to help. Uh, I also want to mention, as if you've been around for the last couple of months, you know we've been uh, doing some remodeling on the offices, and that is nearing completion. Uh, we hope to have everybody at least kind of move back in by next weekend. Um, and in fact, if you have some time on Friday afternoon or Saturday morning, uh, we could use a little bit of help uh, helping to move some stuff back. But uh, if you, the offices are open this morning. If you want to walk through and kind of see what's been done, feel free to help yourselves. I think the, the side door is open now uh, that we've had locked. And so uh, feel free to help yourself walking through and uh, see, what, uh, see the, the changes and we're excited about the many things that upgrades, things that happen uh, because of the remodel. We're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us now as we give our tithes and offerings. Jesus, friend of sinners, love me
Spend time praying together. If you'd like to come and use the altar rail, please come and join me as we offer our prayers. Father, we thank you for all of the ways in which you bless our lives. We come today having been through a week in which we've experienced some joys and some sorrows, some victories and probably some defeats. And in the midst of all of the experiences of our lives, the one constant we know and believe and count on is that you are faithful and you are good and merciful. As we come to you in prayer this morning, we come knowing that you have promised to hear us and to answer our prayers in the way that you know is best. Father, we pray for peace in this chaotic, tumultuous world. We pray, Father, that you will, you will bless and help and encourage and give the assistance that's needed to people who are struggling with the basic necessities of life, for people who live in places of war and violence, People who live with uncertainty about the next day, 
our moments. Father, we, we think about our brothers and sisters who live in far too many places of the world where opposition and threats are a common reality for them. Lord, we pray that you will work miraculously in their lives. Give them protection. Give them strength. And I pray that you will help them to bear witness to your grace and your love and your truth. And that through their witness, even those who persecute them might open their hearts to you. Father, we continue to pray for those who have been affected by the Ebola virus. Its effect is, is, is continuing. And we ask that you will bring an end to this, this terrible disease. We pray that you will bring peace and healing and comfort to all who have been affected by it. We think especially of Sierra Leone and, and the needs there. And we pray that you will bless the ministry of World Hope as they work there to bring stability and healing. We pray your blessing upon all who are in ministry there. Father, we pray for, for your church here. You know the needs and the burdens that we represent. We pray for your comfort in our grief. We pray for your healing in our struggles with health and, and the issues of life. We think especially today of Beulah Avery and Jill Tyson. We pray for Bruce Brenneman and Bev Rett and Micah Christensen and for Linda Roth and Dick Gould and Tim Nichols, for Isla Shea and Edna Howard, for Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler, and for others who may be on our hearts and our minds today and ask for your healing grace in each of them. Father, we pray that you will make us a church that is committed to loving you and loving one another. We pray that you will fill us with your vision for us as a church. That we might be a body of believers, a group of people who are so committed to you and to each other that the world will see you in us. And that we might bear witness to your grace among the many needs all around us. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. morning. Scripture reading this morning is found in John chapter 20 verses 10 through 18. 
Uh, Following the reading this morning, uh, children can be dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church. And as is with the tradition of the church, I'd like to ask you to please rise for the reading of the gospel. John 20, 10 through 18. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the reading of the Lord. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood.
You know, it seems to me that as human beings, we, we are enamored with legends and stories that uh, grab our attention. You know, we, there are lots of people, I don't know about you, but there are lots of people who, you know, still have this thought in the back of their mind that the Loch Ness Monster exists, that there really is a Bigfoot you have all of these uh, urban legends about things and stories that we, we kind of hope in the back of our minds that they're true. And sometimes we tell the stories, we pass them along, and, and uh, then we find out that um, maybe they're not as true as we thought they were. There are some helpful websites you can find that will uh, help to clarify what is true and false. Though I have to keep asking myself, and how do they know exactly this true or false? But there are lots of these legends out. I read one this week that one of the one of the urban legends is that I didn't hear this know this before that that Mister Rogers was a Navy SEAL before he went on television, and the reason he wore sweaters is to cover up all the tattoos he had all over his body. Pretty sure that one's not true. I was thinking about that because when you read this story, uh, this account that John gives us, 
In the 20th chapter of his gospel, the the central character is Mary Magdalene. And there are all kinds of legends and stories about Mary. In fact, she might be the most popular person in Scripture about whom there are legends and stories. It's as though people were trying to fill in the gaps. And Scripture gives us, gives us small glimpses into people's lives, and we want to know more. And as time goes along, we become more and more creative about it. And Mary certainly has this attached to her. There, there, are, there are stories that you know, Mary and Jesus are involved in an illicit relationship, that they are married, that they have children together. I mean, the, the story goes on and on and on. But what we really know about Mary is that she's from Galilee. That she is, um, she has a woman, she's a woman who had seven demons in her that Jesus cast out. And there's some speculation that maybe the demons weren't necessarily that she was demon possessed as we think of it in our culture. But just that she was wrestling with some serious uh, perhaps mental issues or physical issues. But the bottom line is Jesus healed her. And she becomes a, a, one of the women who, who are devout followers of Jesus throughout his ministry. And they spend their time meeting the needs of Jesus and his disciples. Which may mean that they have a certain degree of wealth and they help pay for things. It probably means that they follow them around and cook for them and take care of the you know, cleaning and different things that they need. We know few people that we find at the cross and when you read all the different gospel stories about the resurrection there are details that each of them tells and details that each of them leaves out but one of the details that all of them tell us is that Mary is at the tomb on that Easter morning, Mary comes to the tomb. There's a good, good chance that she is with some other women initially at least. Some of the other writers tell us that. She comes to the tomb. They find that the stone has not just been rolled away, but seemingly has been lifted out of the groove in which it is rolled. And something violent has happened here. And without looking in or anything else, she runs and finds John and Peter, tells them, The stone's been rolled away. And they run back and uh, they look, they go into the inside the tomb. The body is gone. The grave clothes are still there. And Mary seems to just sort of linger outside the tomb. John makes a point in verse uh, 10 to tell us that Peter and John go back home. But Mary stays. I don't want to make too much of that, but John seems to make a point of it. And Mary has this encounter with angels and eventually with Jesus. And you almost get the sense in one hand that, that Jesus says to Mary, I, was, I need you to go talk to the disciples. I was going to tell them myself, but they went home. <laughs> but here is Mary at the tomb and For the first time, she looks in. She doesn't go in. John says she bends over and looks in. And she sees two 
men in there that we know are angels. I don't quite know if she just realizes that. I don't think she does. John makes the point that they are seated at the foot and the head where Jesus' body was lying. I think John wants to remind us again, he's not there. He is risen. And they, and Mary begins to weep, and she's not weeping because Jesus is dead. She's already grieved that. She's weeping because someone's taken his body. And it's breaking her heart. She wants it back. She wants to have a proper burial. She wants to take care of him. She can't stand the thought that, that Jesus is just out there somewhere. And as she's looking in, she, she senses someone behind her. You know that feeling? You don't necessarily hear anything. You just have this sense that someone is standing behind you. And she turns... And there's Jesus, she doesn't recognize him, thinks he's a gardener. He says, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? He says, they've taken Jesus. And if you know where he is, tell me, I, I want to bring him back. And Jesus says, Mary, and she recognizes him. And she goes and tells the disciples. I don't think Mary has any more of an understanding about what's taking place here than Peter and John do. I don't think Mary has some insight into the resurrection of Jesus that now she has figured it all out. And that's why she stays and and she's looking. I think Mary just simply has this heart of she wants to find Jesus. She is looking for Jesus and she's not going to stop at anything until she finds him. And we have in Mary this model, this image of someone who is earnestly seeking Jesus. And I think among many things in the story, it's one of the things that's calling out to us is to, about the, the, the call in our hearts to seek Jesus. Seeking is one of the key concepts in all of Scripture. You find it in Deuteronomy, as Moses says to the people, seek God with all of your heart. You find it throughout the the book of Chronicles, as, as David talks about seeking God with all of his being. When Solomon is about to become king, and David says to him before he dies, seek the Lord with all of your heart. If you seek him, you will find him. And you see that idea of seeking God throughout all of scripture over and over and over again. It is one of the things that describes people who follow God. And as we come to the Psalms, uh, David talks about seeking God with every part of his being. In Psalm 119 talks about how seeking God is connected to obeying the law. And Jeremiah says, if you seek God, you will find him. And perhaps the most famous passage of seeking is Matthew 6.33, that Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And the yearning of your heart, God will give to you. 
I've been pondering in my mind, why is it that we struggle with seeking God? What is it that makes seeking God difficult for us? I wonder if sometimes it's, it's because we just aren't all that interested in being that connected to Jesus. I mean, when you read the passage of Scripture, just these few that we have looked at this morning, one of the concepts that you find here is this earnestness, this, this in deep intent about giving all of our being to what God wants. It's related to obedience, and, and doing what Scripture says, obeying the law, isn't, doesn't necessarily mean that people are seeking Jesus. Because we find Jesus says to the Pharisees, you obey the law, the letter of the law, but your hearts aren't in the right place. But if your hearts really are seeking God, then obeying and doing what God wants is a natural part of that. And sometimes we just simply aren't that interested in being that committed to what to, to following Christ. We're sort of like the disciples who, you know, they're interested that Jesus is not there, but it's not intriguing enough to stay and to keep looking. We just sort of go back home. And sometimes it's, I think maybe it's, it's fear. Because re- the reality is when you seek God, when you truly open your heart to God, when you're truly desiring God, then that means there is a willingness in our hearts to do what God wants us to do. And sometimes that frightens us. It shouldn't frighten us because deep down inside we ought to know God is always asking of us only what is best for us. But we have a feeling That when we seek God, when our hearts are totally devoted to God, when all of our energy and our focus is on yearning for God, then he is going to call us to do some things that might humble us, challenge us. He might ask us to go places we'd rather not go, to engage in relationships that we would rather avoid. I I think it's one of the reasons why we struggle sometimes with prayer as meditation, as contemplation, as listening to God. Because when we talk to God, when prayer is just us talking to God, we control what's being said and heard. But when we sit and listen, When we sit and let the Holy Spirit speak to us, who knows what God's going to say to us? It's in those moments that God puts his finger on something in our lives that's not where it should be. Maybe it's in that moment where where God says, you need to go and, and tell that person you forgive them. You need to go to that person and ask for their forgiveness. You need to make this thing that's wrong right. I think that's one of the reasons why contemplative prayer is so hard for us. It's because we know deep in our minds and our spirits that if we're quiet before God, 
he's probably going to confront some things in our lives that we'd rather ignore. But God confronts them because he loves us. Because he knows that these things are destroying us and they're killing us. And they're hindering us from being all that he wants us to be. He isn't doing this just because he likes to watch us squirm. Because he wants what's best for us. And these things are blocking what is best for us. And seeking God. Seeking God is that kind of mindset that says, Lord, whatever you want to say to me, however you want to deal with me, whatever you want to do in me, come and do it. And sometimes it's just distractions. You know, we get wrapped up in life. We get busy. Things are going on. We get busy with good things. And those things grab our attention and our energy, and our focus, instead of seeking God. Let me look at Mary here. Mary is so focused on the tomb, and, and wondering where Jesus is, that it takes her a while to figure out that she's talking to Jesus. Ever had experiences like that? You're so focused on the problem, on the struggle, and, and that... When, when the Spirit speaks a solution, we miss it. Because all we can think about is the problem. And we get distracted by all kinds of things that take our attention and our energy away from focusing on Christ and what Christ wants in us and for us. And ultimately, seeking God is saying, God, I want you to be who you say you are. I want you to be God, not me. I want to surrender all of my my desires about what I want you to be and let you be who you say you are. It is seeking God is living with this openness to God. And it's earnestly seeking after him. And ultimately, the seeking of God comes, and one of the things I think that makes it hard for us is that we have created boxes and put limitations on God because we want him to be who we want him to be instead of allowing him to be who he says he is. And we decide that these are the ways in which God works. These are the ways of God that make me feel comfortable and make me feel safe. And that's how I want God to work. And all the while, God is wanting to explode our limitations and our boxes and all the ways in which we try to confine him. I don't quite understand exactly all that, that uh, Jesus is saying when he, when he says to, to Mary, you know, to go, go tell the disciples that, that I'm ascending to the Father. And there's some degree of, of conflict in exactly when that's going to happen and how it happens. And obviously he's not doing that quite yet because in the next couple of chapters, he, 20 and, the rest of 20 and 21, he appears to them. But he is ascending. And the idea of Christ ascending, you wonder why would that be the message that he gives to Mary? 
I think part of it is simply because the ascension, as he says in John 14, 15, 16, it's when he ascends into heaven, then that opens the way for the Holy Spirit to come in a new way into his followers, into the world. And because he ascends into heaven, he tells the disciples he's preparing a place for us and he will reappear and he will set the kingdom to right, as N.T. Wright says. He will bring all of the kingdom to fruition and establish his kingdom forever, the new heaven and new earth. But I also think a part of this idea of ascension that he's trying to begin to help them understand is that as he ascends, there are no more boundaries on Jesus. He's not limited by his human body anymore. He now has a new body, and we get a glimpse of that in the next parts of this chapter as he appears to the disciples. And it's the same, but it's different. But the ascension, in essence, means that Jesus now has broken all the boundaries that his human body has placed on him. No more limitations. And there is something significant about that image, that metaphor of Jesus being released from the limitations and the boundaries. And you and I need to let him be free. And instead of trying to keep Jesus in a box that we've created, that he can only operate in these ways that we feel safe with, only operate in these ways that we feel comfortable with, to let him do whatever he wants to do, whatever way he wants to do it. Paul says that when the Spirit really gets freedom, and when we are free in the Spirit, God does things beyond what we could ever dream or imagine. And the limitations that we have a tendency to place on God are restricting his ability to work in us and to work through us. And the question I keep asking myself is, why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep putting these limitations on him? I think it's because it makes me feel more comfortable. Because if Jesus is loose in the world, then everything's fair game. Everything's open. And I'm no longer in control. He is. And when I stop and think about it, I'm pretty sure that's better. But it's hard. It's hard to let go of control. It's hard to to let Christ break and shatter the boxes that we've created and that make us feel so secure. But he wants to do so much more in our hearts and our lives than we could plan or dream or imagine. He doesn't want to shatter our boxes just because he wants to make us feel a little insecure. He shatters our boxes because he wants to do great things. He wants us to actually be people who look like him. 
He wants to take us places we could never dream he could take us and do things in us and through us we could never dream possible. His plans for us are so much greater and so much bigger if we would just let him do it. And instead of holding back and creating boundaries, we take our hands off of our lives and let him work the way he wants to work. I think sometimes we get so wrapped up when it comes to seeking God and our relationship with God, we get so wrapped up in the end results instead of just living in the journey. The problem with thinking about end results is that if if that's our focus, if that's all we're thinking about, then we will do whatever it takes to get to end results. And all we're thinking about is how fast can we get to end results? And when our goal and our focus is end results, that's when we get tempted to become manipulators. The end justifies the means. We become very impatient with God because all we're thinking about is how fast and how easily can I get to end results? And then I can just sit back and relax. But seeking God is really not about end results. It's about the journey. It's about the motivation of our hearts. It's about relationship. And the funny thing is, when we focus on the journey, when we focus on the day-to-day, moment-to-moment relationship with Christ in our lives in the moment-by-moment and the day-to-day, the end results just sort of take care of themselves. And when we're in the journey, if God wants to go slow, we'll go slow. If God wants to speed up things a little bit, then we'll speed up things a little bit. If God wants to take us in this direction that seems to be different than our end result, we're going to follow him. Because he knows what he's doing with us. And it's in the building of relationship that we find the joy of the Lord and the peace of Christ. God is far more interested in relationship with us than he is in us getting to an end result that we think is what he wants for us. Because actually the end result he's interested in is relationship. I mean, that's the, that's the whole thing. I don't know if Mary understands all of that as she's standing there at the tomb, but I do know that Mary has a heart for Jesus. Mary's heart is tuned to Jesus. She is, she is seeking him with every part of her being. And it takes her a little while to understand that this is Jesus she's talking to, because I think that's because he's out of context. I mean, think about it. She saw him die on the cross. She helped wrap him in burial cloths. She watched him being carried to the tomb. She stood there as they laid him on the stone slab and then as they rolled the stone over the front of it. 
There's no doubt in Mary's mind, Jesus is dead and buried, period. So why would she possibly think that this person standing in front of her is Jesus? I mean, you know, you know that sense of you see someone totally out of context. It takes you a a minute or two to realize, oh, that's who that is. I I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. If we're in Olean shopping or someplace else outside of the area here and we run into someone, especially if children, I I watch them. They're poking their mom and dad. That's Pastor Wes. That's Pastor Wes. Why is he not at the church? He He lives at the church, doesn't he? And why is he dressed like that? He's not wearing church clothes. You know, it, it totally is it's blowing their minds because it's totally out of context. And I think there's a lot that's going on here with Mary. Until Jesus says her name. And there's something about having a relationship with someone, having your heart connected to them, that when you hear your name, there's recognition. There's intimacy. You know, we're all known by different names. And to some people, we may be Mr. or Mrs. But to family, it's different. Because we have a relationship. It's a closeness. And Mary's heart is close to Jesus. And when he name, she understands. And the most natural thing in the world for her is to fall at his feet. And, and I get the image, I get the picture that she's lying prostrate on the ground with her arms wrapped around her leg, around his legs. I can almost see Jesus, you know, walking like this, dragging her. It's because she's hanging on for dear life. I found you. I'm not letting you go again. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. Not yet. It has fascinated people for centuries as to what exactly he means by that. And there are all kinds of theological perspectives about it. And they probably all have elements of truth. But for me, there's something metaphorical going on here. That Jesus is saying to Mary, look, I I know you love me and you want to worship me. And that's important. But right now, I need you to be my messenger. I need you to get up and I need you to go talk to my disciples and tell them what you've just seen. And as awesome as worship is, and as much as we give our hearts to worship, seeking God is not just worship. When our hearts are open to God, when we really are worshiping God, when when we are engaged with him, it can never be just me and Jesus and we cut out the rest of the world. It's always about how worship takes us into the world. And what we do here on Sunday and what you do in your private time with God is not intended to just sequester us from the rest of the world and insulate us from the rest of the world. And the ideal life would be that it would just be me and Jesus and nobody else around and I never have to encounter anybody else. 
Because the reality is, being a disciple of the resurrected Christ does not mean that we become clingy with Jesus. Jesus always has something for us to do. And the being and the doing are always interrelated and connected, and and you cannot separate them. Jesus says to his disciples in John 17, actually he prays for them in John 17. He says, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm not asking you to remove them from the world. What I'm asking you is that as they go into the world, you'll protect them from the evil one. Which implies the disciples of Jesus are in the middle of some difficult stuff. We're in the middle of the world. But that's what leads, that's where we, we are led when we seek God. And we go in the power of Christ. We go in the power of the resurrected Christ. But worship always leads us to others. That's why when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He doesn't just say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first commandment. And the second is connected to it. And you cannot separate it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Seeking God with this open heart and mind and spirit is always moving us into the world. Always moving us into other people's lives. Just like Jesus. You know, Mary is probably one of the most unlikely people to be the first witness of Jesus and to be the first witness for Jesus. She's a woman, and in that culture, women are considered unreliable witnesses. In fact, the Celsus century uh, oppositions to the Christianity said that he couldn't believe in the resurrection because it was all the rantings of a, of a out of her mind woman. And that was the mindset of the culture. They would have never expected Jesus to appear first to a woman, maybe to his mother, but not to Mary. You go to the disciples. They're the most logical choice. And yet here is Jesus appearing to Mary. And I don't think it's just because the disciples aren't there. And so this is what he's left with. You almost get the sense that Jesus and the angels are waiting in the shadows until the disciples leave. And then they come out. Because God loves to do the unexpected. God loves to work in our lives in ways that are unexpected, unpredictable. He loves to take us to places that are beyond us and to challenge us in ways that we might not think he would challenge us. And that's the test of our seeking. Are we willing to let him do that? And to understand that in those places, we find God doing things beyond what we could dream or imagine. great British 
Pastor F.B. Meyer once said that perhaps the greatest disappointment in heaven, if there are disappointments in heaven, so perhaps the greatest disappointment in heaven will come when we realize all the things that God wanted to do in our lives and through our lives if we would have just let him. If we just let him shatter our boxes. If we just let him expand the limitations. If we just let him be God. Be who he says he is. And trust him. I suspect that we can all think this morning of ways in which we are seeking God with limitations. Maybe God's been speaking to us about something we need to do and we really would rather not. Maybe we sense God nudging us outside of places that are comfortable for us and easy for us. Maybe it's about a relationship. Maybe it's about the future, a decision, circumstances. This morning, if our hearts are really open to seeking God and wanting God, will we give him the permission? Will we be obedient? Will we trust and seek him without boundaries, without limitations. Let the risen Christ be the risen Christ in us and in our world. Holy Father, in, in this moment of silence, speak to us. And give us grace and courage to let you be who you want to be in us. Father, we want to begin to live in the fullness of who you are. So give us grace to seek you with all of our hearts. That you do your work in us that you desire to do. Beyond what we could dream or imagine. Through the risen Christ, we pray. Amen.
Please stand with us as we sing together. you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.